Well, let's take our Bibles once more and return to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 6. This morning, Luke chapter 6. We begin with verse 17. This morning I'll be reading through verse 26. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Father, these things sound familiar to us. And they ought to. There is great truth here. But Father, help us not to be complacent. Thinking that we are familiar with these statements and therefore there's not much that we can learn Father if we knew all there was to know about what is written here in this portion of your word we would still need to be reminded and so teach us and remind us today in Jesus name Amen well, if you recall from last week, Jesus had spent the night in prayer, communing with his Father prior to his choosing of the Twelve. He chose the Twelve out of the larger group of his disciples. He summoned his disciples, and out of that larger number, he chose the twelve. And they are named for us here in verses 14 and 15 and 16. Now, when the choosing of the twelve was completed, we're told in verse 17 that Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place where a large assembly had gathered they had come to hear him teach. They had come to be healed. 
Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal regions of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And you can imagine that vast assembly naturally falling into concentric arcs. Close to Jesus would have been the twelve, perhaps self-consciously aware of their new status. Around them would have been gathered the larger contingent of Jesus' disciples, those, that group of disciples from whom the twelve were chosen, but who themselves were not now part of the twelve. And beyond them come multitudes that had come from distances to see and to hear Jesus and to be healed by him. This would have been the first time that the twelve stood with Jesus in the midst of ministry in their now public official capacity. And the multitudes, of course, are not disappointed Those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured, and all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. The press of people must have become frantic. Jesus' healing power, though, as it's described here, was not the centerpiece of that day. Jesus had something else in mind. Yes, he was going to heal. And that's laid out very clearly before us. He was going to cast out demons. He was going to minister to those who had come to him. And we see once again here, as Luke describes the healing process, it's another example of what we have seen so often in the Gospels, that Healing does not happen any one particular way. Sometimes, all people have to do is touch him, and they're healed. Other times, Jesus spits in the ground and makes mud and puts the mud on the eyes of a blind man, and he's healed that way. Sometimes, Jesus doesn't have to be anywhere near the person that he's healing or raising from the dead. And so Jesus heals. But as we've seen elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke, and in other Gospels as well, Jesus makes the point that he had come to teach. That's his primary mission in his earthly ministry, to teach. And so, yes, he does heal, But he also teaches, turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say. So the healing was a prelude to something far greater. And that's always how miracles function. Miracles do not stand on their own. Miracles do not occur for the sake of miracles. They are connected always with teaching with authority, with revelation. And that's what we find here. 
Now the sermon takes up the remainder of Luke chapter 6. And as I mentioned in my prayer, this should be familiar. It is the Beatitudes. And we might think that it is a parallel passage to what we find in Matthew, which is the more familiar passage that includes the Beatitudes, right? The Sermon on the Mount. We're familiar with that. Well, all right, so Luke is just giving us uh, a different version of the Sermon on the Mount, but that's a problem if you've been paying attention. Because verse 17 says that Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. How do you have the Sermon on the Mount if Jesus came off of the Mount and is standing on a level place? Well, Jesus wasn't much different, apparently, than a lot of preachers are today. (laughs) If you're preaching in front of a different group than usual, perhaps you'll go over the same material that you have once preached to other people. Typically, if I am invited to go preach at a different church, I'm not going to write a brand new sermon. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go into the Word. I'm going to try to determine what this church might need given its own situation. But I've got a backlog of 28 years of sermons. And I'll rework it. It won't be the exact same thing. But it's the same scripture, the same text, the same truth coming out of the passage. And most likely that's what's going on here. Jesus is covering some of the same ground that he covered on the Sermon on the Mount. But there are some differences, and it's a different audience. Leon Morris explains, preachers usually make use of the same or different matter in different sermons, especially if they speak without a written script. This habit of preachers seems a better explanation of the combination of resemblances and differences than extensive editorial activity. What he means by that, of course, is that you know, Luke isn't manipulating what Jesus said. Jesus spoke, and Luke recorded what he spoke, and there are some differences between what Luke heard and what Matthew heard, or at least what Luke received. So in accordance with, with that explanation, there are differences between the sermon that we find here in Luke, and the Sermon on the Mount that we find in Matthew. This sermon, in fact, has been often called the Sermon on the Plain, as opposed to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew devotes three long chapters to the Sermon on the Mount, Luke only one. Matthew records nine Beatitudes, Luke only four. 
Luke's Beatitudes do not focus on the positives, as do some of Matthew's, where he says, blessed are the pure in heart, and so on. The sermon in Luke only includes the negatives, like poverty and hunger. Also, the woes that follow Luke's Beatitudes have no parallel in Matthew's account. He doesn't record woes at all. And Luke's Beatitudes are given in the more personal second person than Matthew's. Luke uses the term you. In Matthew, it's spoken of as they. Lastly, the language that Luke records is more stark and physical than Matthew's account. For example, example, Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke just says, blessed are the poor. So I have to conclude then that Luke presents a different, though similar, sermon preached on a different occasion with a distinct theological intention. Notice that the sermon is introduced in verse 20 with the phrase, turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, which clearly indicates that this sermon was specifically for his personal followers, the 12 and perhaps the larger group of disciples. It was not directed to the crowds although they were perfectly free to listen in. The direct second-person plural, blessed are you, addresses his disciples. And so we have here a profile of what a disciple is to be. Poor, hungry, sorrowful, rejected. Now in Matthew, it is similar, but Matthew's focus is on the kingdom The entire gospel of Matthew revolves around the idea of the kingdom. And when Matthew puts forth the Sermon on the Mount, what he's describing is a citizen of the kingdom. Which is another way of saying a disciple. And when we read through Luke's account we find that this is quite radical. Luke's Beatitudes are concentrated theological epigrams. And they blow away any shallow understanding of what discipleship is. We find Jesus here describing total commitment. And as we look at these, we examine the blessings and their parallel woes together. You see the blessings of poverty in verse 20 and verse 24. Jesus begins with an assertion that poverty is blessed. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then, shortly after, in verse 24, but... Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. And for the meaning of these statements, we need to turn to the Old Testament, because as Jesus dramatically stated, a principle rooted in the Old Testament. 
Though the Old Testament doesn't see poverty per se as a blessing, Proverbs chapter 30 verses 8 and 9 does say it can be either a curse or a blessing. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Riches, poverty, they can each lead to different kinds of sin. Elsewhere, Proverbs says, the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Historically, we know that God at times gave wealth to Israel as a blessing. When he delivered his people from Egypt, he blessed them with the Egyptians' plunder, which, if you'll remember, the Egyptians gave willingly because they couldn't wait to get the Israelites out of there. And then he brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. That speaks of prosperity. By the time of King David and King Solomon, national wealth was seen as a sign of divine blessing, and Israel had an abundance. In addition to the Old Testament evidence, anyone who has known genuine poverty will attest that it is a humiliating experience. If money is power, then the poor are powerless. And their powerlessness is regularly exploited. And God addressed those issues throughout the Old Testament and the New as well. Ask any of the world's poverty-stricken if it is a blessed state and see what they say. Nevertheless, there were blessed poor in the Old Testament after the fall of the nation when God's people were carried away into exile in Babylon. They were the dispossessed, the exiled poor. Of course, not all of the exiles remained poor in Babylon, but only those who compromised those who sold out to Babylonian culture, who adopted their way of life, they were often able to become very wealthy. And when it came time to return to build the fallen walls of Jerusalem, they didn't want to go. Whereas those who did not compromise and thereby remained in poverty couldn't wait to get back. This brings us back to the most prominent Old Testament quotation thus far in Luke's Gospel. Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, with which the, Jesus uh, used to begin his ministry as he spoke there in the synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The poor in Isaiah 61 were the exiled people of Israel who had not compromised with their pagan conquerors. They knew that they could not deliver themselves, and so they longed for the promised Messiah and the salvation which he would bring. Though several hundred years had passed by the time of Jesus, Israel still was suffering from a succession of foreign occupiers. The Persians and the Greeks and now the Romans. And they were still uncompromised poor among them who longed for the fulfillment of the divine promise. 
The Virgin Mary was in their line. After, she, after Gabriel's visit, do you remember what she sang to Elizabeth? My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Two prime examples of the poor that Luke spotlights were Simeon and Anna soon after the birth of Christ. Simeon, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Anna did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and, and praying night and day. That's not the way you become rich. These two had no attachment to the riches and possessions of this world. They longed for the kingdom of God. Significantly, when Jesus came, he gave the poor good news and he established his kingdom by becoming poor himself. His life as an itinerant preacher was singularly poor. He said of his own life, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's poverty. Paul said of him, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We should not be surprised that Jesus' teaching is full of this idea. Jesus' disciples are generally poor, though God does sometimes grant material riches. His disciples do not compromise with the fallen culture. Their belief system is firmly rooted in Christ and his divine word. They believe that Jesus Christ is the only hope of the world and the only way to the Father. They stand true in their relationships and in their public conduct. Whatever wealth they have does not come through ethical compromise or the adoption of everybody is doing it business practices. They do not love money. They do not hold their earnings tightly, for they have given everything to Christ. That is a disciple. They know that Jesus is their only hope. He is their life. And so they live under his blessing. Blessed are the poor. As he looks directly at his disciples. They have his smile of approval. And this, of course, is cause for deep reflection, especially for those of us who are comfortably ensconced in a very prosperous culture. We rich are constantly struggling with the temptation to rely on riches Can we have them and yet not rely on them? Depends on what kind of disciple we are. We rich are dulled to our need because of the plenty which we possess. Can we have plenty and still feel our need? It's one of the obstacles to evangelism, isn't it, humanly speaking? 
when you speak to someone who is well off, they're comfortable. What do they need Jesus for? Plenty gets in the way of understanding our true need. We rich tend to be proud of what we have done and to take credit for our comforts. Can you live a humble life, which is also a prosperous life? These are questions that each must answer for themselves. Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. In verses 21 and 25, Jesus speaks of hunger. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Verse 25, woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. And Jesus' words would probably have left his hearers in confusion before they can adjust. Here's another shocking statement that comes at them. Again, the Old Testament does not directly equate blessing with physical hunger, but it does command a different kind of hunger. Two eloquent passages in the Psalms give spiritual hunger. Wonderful expression. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before him? O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Stunning imagery coming to us from King David. His soul thirsts, his spiritual longing is like a bodily ache. Life apart from God is desiccated. But on the flip side, God has promised Israel in Jeremiah 29, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. With his coming, Christ became the source of all satisfaction, all contentment. Jesus told the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He cries out in the temple in John chapter 7, If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Just prior to that, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
So Jesus blesses spiritual hunger. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. The promise is at once eternal and temporal because we can know both hunger and satisfaction in this world. May we never become so well fed that we cease to hunger for the things above. Jesus moves on in verse 21 to speak of another blessed state. The blessing of sorrow. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And at the end of verse 25, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. The latter statement is not an attack on laughter. Jesus does not mean blessed are the grim, cheerless Christians, though some believers have apparently interpreted it that way. Spurgeon once remarked that some preachers he had known appeared to have their neckties twisted around their souls. The author Robert Louis Stevenson must have known some preachers like that. He once wrote in his diary, I've been to church today and I am not depressed. (laughs) As if it was unusual. Christ certainly is not pronouncing a beatitude on a grumpy disposition. Humor and laughter are good and necessary for the believer. We are to be a joyful people. Solomon says that a joyful heart is good medicine. The need for laughter in the church was underlined by Oswald Standers with these questions. Should we not see that lines of laughter about the eyes are just as much marks of faith as are the lines of care and seriousness? Is laughter pagan? We have already allowed too much that is good to be lost to the church and cast many pearls before swine. A church is in a bad way when it banishes laughter from the sanctuary and leaves it to the cabaret, the nightclub, and the toastmasters. Those references might be a little dated, but you get the point. What Jesus assaulted is the superficial, shallow kind of mirth that characterizes the world. The inability to weep at things that ought cause us to weep. The ability to laugh at that which should make us weep. This is what the world does. The world laughs at evil and wickedness, perversion, all sorts of unrighteousness. Simeon and Anna were classic examples of the ideal mourners. Those whom Jesus commended because they weep now. Theirs was a life of perpetual mourning until the day Jesus was brought into the temple. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Sounds 
much like the attitude of many of us today. Waiting for the consolation of God's people when Jesus comes. Because this world is so wicked. Because we realize we don't belong here. Everything we see, everything we hear, grieves us. Because sin grieves us. Because the spirit within us is grieved. That was the attitude of Simeon and Anna there in the first century. He was waiting for the removal of mourning because of the arrival of the Messiah. I hope that's what you're waiting for. For the Messiah to come again. Anna did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and and, and praying day and night. She was occupied with what we might refer to as holy mourning. Both of these godly individuals were in mourning for the condition of their nation. They were praying for Israel's restoration and consolation. Jesus himself mourned for Israel. Isaiah prophesied that he would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And while on earth in body Jesus wailed, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus was both the ultimate mourner and the true consolation of Israel. Israel could have left off their mourning had they recognized that their consolation had come. Simeon and Anna, though, were in the minority. Many, especially the Sadducees and the tax collectors, they liked life as it was. But Simeon and Anna wanted change, not political change. They don't seem to have cared at all about Rome. They wanted spiritual newness to come. They wanted the kingdom of God to be manifest. When Simeon held the baby, he sang, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And you've got to believe he had a smile when he said it. We're called to weep over lost souls, over people that will go into eternal darkness without Christ. We are to weep over the world's misery, over the injustice that falls on so many helpless people over the unfairness that victimizes the weak, over child abuse and battered wives, over adultery, over divorce, over betrayals, over rejection, over loneliness, over those who now laugh, but unless they turn to Christ will mourn eternally. We weep now, but we look forward to an eternal joy. That is coming. That will be ours because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our consolation. 
Jesus says there's another blessing. It's the blessing, believe it or not, of rejection. Verse 22, he says, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. But, verse 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Notice what the Beatitude does not say. It does not say, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil, period. Though unfortunately, this is the way it's sometimes interpreted. Those who read it like this delude themselves into thinking that any time they experience conflict, they are bearing the reproach of Christ. Sometimes people treat us that way because we deserve to be treated that way. (laughs) We talk about the gospel being a stumbling block. How often do we become the stumbling block? Christ's words have to be carefully read. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. You're not blessed if people scorn you because you're obnoxious. You're blessed if they scorn you for Christ's sake. Everyone who lives like Jesus will be persecuted, he tells us. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Paul advised Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul also warned the Thessalonians, you yourselves know that we are destined for trials. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. He and Barnabas told the Christians in Antioch, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And few people in our time have understood this better than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Suffering, then, is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. This is why Luther reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church and one of the memoranda drawn up in preparation for the Augsburg Confession similarly defines the church as the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of his grace. Part of what Bonhoeffer means there is that suffering is a means of assurance. Do you suffer for the name of Christ? That's what Christ said would happen. Shouldn't be a surprise. During a stressful time in Spurgeon's life, when he was depressed by criticism, his wife took a sheet of paper, printed the eight Beatitudes on it in large old English script, and tacked it to the ceiling over his bed. 
She wanted the reality to saturate his mind, morning and evening. Everyone who lives righteously will be persecuted. On the flip side, Jesus tells us, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. This cannot happen to a Christian unless that one has sacrificed every principle of discipleship. We should be well thought of by outsiders. In fact, that's one of the qualifications for an elder, according to Paul in 1 Timothy 3. But that's different from universal popularity. If we are acceptable and popular with people who live according to the spirit of the age, we may in fact belong to that evil age. They might like us because we're so much like them. And the desire for popularity can become a self-focused spiritual anesthetic. A person who is persecuted because of Christ is the one who is truly alive. There's an old saying, even a dead dog can swim with the tide. To swim against the tide, you need to be alive. You need to be kicking. Being yes men and yes women of an ungodly culture means drifting with the dead. That's not discipleship. Discipleship is swimming against the tide and being willing to bear the consequences. Are we hated for Christ? Have we been excluded for Christ? Do we suffer insult for Christ? Are we rejected because of Christ? Then, brothers and sisters, we are blessed. And we will receive all of the benefits of his grace. Now, as he causes us to stand, and in the future, as he causes us to dwell with him in joy forever. Father, bring it to pass. Make us true disciples of Jesus, willing to endure whatever that brings so that Christ might be our all in all and magnified before the world. In his name we ask it. Amen.